Good morning, Sojourn. We're going to read from the Word of God today. If I could invite you to stand up with me, uh, we're going to turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 12 and 13 uh, before the words preached today. So please join me as I find it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Sojourn, this is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Happy uh, Thanksgiving weekend. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to gather with you on this weekend and to spend time singing with you uh, and now opening up God's word together as we jump back into Philippians chapter 2. So let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, and ask him to bless our time in his word. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would just help us to understand and acknowledge your presence And Father of mercy, we pray that you'd be merciful to us today. Lord of grace and truth, be gracious to us and lead us in truth today. And faithful helper and counselor, help us today to have a grand view of God. And we pray that as you do those things, God, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would transform us. You would conform us more and more to the image of Christ, our Savior and King. And so we pray this in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> if, uh, if you know me very well, you know that I'm not really so much a do-it-yourself kind of guy, unless that involves looking up someone to call to have them come do whatever it is I need done. Now, ironically enough, I did this past weekend uh, actually put together furniture and paint it for my daughter's bedroom. Yeah, it was a big deal. It's only been sitting in my house for like four months, but uh, it finally got done over the weekend. Uh, And somewhat recently, I kind of fixed our dishwasher by watching a YouTube video. But generally speaking, uh, I don't really do do do-it-yourself kind of stuff. But I know there are lots of you here in our church that are DIY experts. You you, you buy how-to manuals, you look up videos, figure out how you can do pretty much anything that you set your mind to, whether that's remodeling your house or installing or fixing appliances or building a fence or fixing your car. The list goes on and on about the things that you can do. For me, I chalk it up to a combination of my ineptness and my impatience when it comes to figuring those things out. And really, at the end of the day, it is really good to be able to do things on your own. Our our culture values that. I mean, you can go to the fact that we have stores like Lowe's and Home Depot that are huge selling you stuff so that you can go do whatever it is you want to do on your own. There's tons of books and manuals that are marketed to you to help you to be able to do these kinds of things on your own. But this value of being able to do things on your own in kind of the external of your life, it also bleeds into the reality of your internal life, yourself. How you can fix yourself. See, an age-old implied question of our culture and society and really humanity is, how do people change? And while there are literal and figurative shelves and shelves of books on how to remodel your house, there are just as many shelves and shelves of self-help books. Books that tell you how you can start being a certain kind of person. Books that tell you how you can stop being a certain kind of person. 
And and I would say that if you are remotely self-aware, then you know that there are things in your life right now that aren't the way that you would like them to be, aren't the way that you would hope them to be. But if that's the case, how do we change to be who we want to be? Well, in these two short verses that we're going to look at this morning, we see the answer. An answer that's really important for both our individual lives and our life together as a community. And so as we spend time together in God's living and active word, and whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, my hope is, is that you will see that you cannot change at the core of who you are apart from Jesus. And my hope is that God, as you learn that, will bring freedom to your life. My hope is, as you learn that and soak in God's word this morning, that he'll do a transforming work in your life even now. And so let's dive into our scripture this morning in Philippians 2. And may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. These two verses that we're going to look at this morning are uh, maybe some of the most misapplied texts of scripture. Most people, as they look at them, understand that what we see in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, are essential for the, the living out of the Christian life. They're very practical to Christian living, but how do we actually apply them? Well, as we study God's word and we seek both to submit our lives to it and and apply it rightly to our lives, one of the key things we always have to do, one of the key things we always have to take into consideration is the immediate context and the biblical context that these words are written in. Well, in this case, Paul helps us right away when he says, therefore, Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians understand. Paul wants to make sure that we understand what he is about to say is directly connected to what he has just said. So in light of his call to unity, unity that's rooted in humility and sacrificial love, humility and sacrificial love that is only possible in your life and in my life because of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, that Jesus is both the means and the example of humility and sacrificial love. Paul says, in light of that, here's what I want you to do now. So what is it that Paul calls us to do? Well, the command he gives us is inserted in the middle of these two verses. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, to understand what Paul is saying and what he isn't saying In this call, in this command, we need to see what he has said just before this. So at the beginning of verse 12, he says, as you have always obeyed. It's been a mark of the Philippians, their lives of walking in obedience, of seeking to pursue Christ and obey Jesus. It's not about them obeying Paul, like Paul has given them a bunch of things to do. They're following Christ. They're seeking to conform their lives to Christ. And so Paul's commending them for that. Now, he's just reminded us of the lordship of Jesus in the previous verses that there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so what he's doing with the Philippians is saying, you, you're following him now as Lord. That's a good thing. See, to be Lord is to be the ruler of all things, to be the king of all things. To be Lord is to be able to say to those who follow you, to actually call them to follow you. So Paul's saying, good job, Philippians. You're doing the right thing. You're pursuing Christ. You've obeyed him. 
And they've done this while Paul was present with them, while he was there in their midst and spending time with them, and he's teaching them, and he's instructing them, and he's encouraging them to follow Jesus. But he says, now in his absence, and this is especially important because if you remember just the context, Paul's writing this letter from jail. Paul's sitting in a prison cell for preaching Jesus. And so he's saying, now much more in my absence, I want to encourage you to keep obeying Jesus. And that's really the crux of what this command is to them and to us. Keep obeying Jesus. If we look at our text here, we see that the flow of these verses are a just as, so now kind of flow to it. Just as you've always obeyed, so now keep obeying. But those aren't the words that Paul uses. So why does he say what he says And why does it matter for our lives here and now? What Paul says is, just as you've always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation. There have been all kinds of explanations given trying to explain what Paul is talking about here, but I want to cut to the chase for us this morning. This is not about getting saved. This is not about staying saved. What Paul is saying here is about living like someone who is saved. Living like someone who is saved. To be saved is to be rescued. To be rescued particularly from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to rescue you and set you free from both of those things. Both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. We have all rebelled against God. We've all sought to go our own way. And what we deserve because of that is eternal separation from God, bearing the full and eternal wrath of God for our rebellion against him. And so that's the penalty of sin. Christ comes to rescue you from that. But he also frees you from the power of sin in your life. The power of sin that has dominion over you, Christ comes to set you free from that so you're no longer captive to it. And so salvation here from sin is not something you can earn. You don't come before God with all of your good works. You don't come before God with all your righteous living and say, God, look at all the good things I've done. Can those good things outweigh the bad things that I've done? It doesn't work that way. Because you still have the bad things there. They have to be removed. His penalty has to be paid for those things in order for God to be righteous, in order for God to be holy, in order for God to be just. So it's not a matter of balancing out your life like you balance out your checkbook. Sin has to be paid for, but Christ has come to do that. So you can't bring anything to God to earn that salvation, which also means that if you can't earn it, you can't unearn it. And so what Paul is saying here, I just want to make sure we're really clear on this. This is not about gaining salvation. It's also not about losing your salvation It's about working out something that is already yours in Christ. It's already yours in Christ. But we also need to understand that our salvation is not only something that you're saved from, but it's a saving to. Saving from and a saving to. We are rescued from the darkness and death of slavery to sin. But in Christ we are restored to a right relationship with the holy living God. A relationship that's been severed and tarnished by our rebellion and sin, the core of which, as we mentioned last week, is to be the God of our own lives, to 
be the masters of our own lives, instead of submitting our lives to the one true God and King, we try to go our own way and do our own thing. And so Jesus comes and he humbles himself. And he comes to us as one of us to rescue us, to redeem us from slavery to sin, and to gift us with his righteousness. That when Christ died on the cross for your sin, that in that moment he took on your sin and he gave you his righteousness so that when God looks at you now, if you're in Christ, if your faith is in him, he doesn't see you as that sinner. He sees you as that saint set apart for him, made righteous in Christ. Through Christ you've been resurrected from a spiritually dead life to have life now and forever. And he went to the cross having lived a perfect life, now dying a substitutionary, sacrificial death in your place and then rising again from the grave to life, to rule and reign forever. And so, when you place your faith in the saving work of Jesus, it's the beginning of your salvation. It's the beginning. And I use that word very intentionally, the word beginning, because our salvation is something that happens in movements. If you are a student of music or you appreciate music, you know things like symphonies or big epic uh, songs often have movements within them. There's different parts that make up the whole within a symphony. And the same thing is true for our salvation. It's right to say that if you are in Christ, if you're united to Jesus, you've been fused together in his life, death, and resurrection, that everything that's Jesus's is now yours. It's right to say that you are saved. And that you are being saved. And that you will be saved. Because the reality is you have been rescued from the penalty and power of sin in your life. You are declared righteous before God. You are declared justified before him. Sin no longer has a penalty over your head for you. You're no longer captive to it. But now he's working out that salvation in your life. And you are a part of that work which is exactly what Paul's saying here. See, the reality is, if you are in Christ, having faith in him and what he's accomplished for you, as Paul's just reiterated in the previous verses, then you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. That is true for you if you're a follower of Jesus. But when you and I look at our lives, we still see that there are pieces and parts that don't look much like Jesus. See, God has rescued you and he's given you a new nature in Christ. But until Christ comes again or calls you home, your new nature and your old nature are warring against one another. And the world that we live in constantly seeks to preach and draw you back to that old nature. Keep living the way you used to live, not the way Christ is enabled you to live and given you to live. And so Paul says to us, because of that reality, because of that truth, work out your own salvation. To work out is to put something into effect entirely or thoroughly. So Paul's saying, look, I want you to live out the fullness of who you are in Christ. Live out the fullness of what Christ has done for you, freeing you from both the penalty and the power of sin. And so what Paul's focusing on here in verses 12 and 13 is the movement within your salvation of being saved, continuing to throw off the old and embody the newness of Jesus, continuing to live like sin no longer has dominion over you. 
The theological word for this is the word sanctification. To be sanctified is to be set apart or made holy. To be sanctified is to be made more and more like a saint. And we talked about that at the very beginning when we were walking through Philippians 1.1. If you are in Christ, you are no longer primarily identified by your sin. You're identified by being in Christ as a saint set apart for him. And so what Paul's teaching us in this text is what's called progressive sanctification. The process where you are gradually and increasingly made more and more like Jesus. Progressively coming to realize all the blessings and all the fullness of your salvation in Christ. Progressively coming to live like a saved person, like a rescued person who has new life in Christ not someone who's still captive to sin. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. God doesn't just save you and say that you no longer have to bear the penalty for sin and then kind of leave you to yourself and leave you on your own and say, well, I guess you're okay now. No, he saves you and then he seeks to recreate in you Christ, to to make you and conform you to the image of Christ, that perfect picture of the image of God. And he does it by and through Christ grace. See, what this means for us is that our justification, being made right with God, declaring right before him, and our sanctification, being made more like Jesus, are not the same thing, but they are connected things. We we are going to become more like Jesus because we've been saved by Jesus. And so we need to understand something critical here if we're going to seek to walk in obedience to Jesus, if we're going to see our lives transformed and changed. And it's something we need to come back to over and over again. In the cross of Christ, the power of sin has been broken. You are not only freed from your guilt, you're also freed from captivity. That you now can walk out of the jail cell of your sin and say no to sin and yes to Jesus. This means that what Paul is calling us to is possible because God has made it possible by and through Jesus. As one pastor says, the only sin that we can defeat is forgiven sin. The only sin that you're able to say no to is forgiven sin. But the good news in Jesus is that's all your sin. That there's no sin in your life where Jesus said, well, I paid almost all for all of it, but this part right here, that's all on you. You have to figure that out on your own. No, in Christ, your sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for in full on the cross. And so you now can defeat forgiven sin in your life. And so when Paul says, work out your own salvation, what he's calling you to, what he's not calling you to, is to save yourself by your works. No, he's calling you to show that you're saved by how you live. See, friends, the genuineness of your faith is ultimately expressed in your obedience to Christ. That you're following him as Lord. Not in the sense of following a bunch of rules, but coming more and more fully and completely under his lordship of actually following Jesus. And that's what Paul is getting at and why it matters for the Philippians and why it matters for us. If you confess Jesus as Lord, that your life actually means that you're following him as Lord. But that's not all that Paul says, is it? He says, work out your own salvation but to do so with fear and trembling. And what does that mean? Are we supposed to be afraid of God and obey Jesus out of fear of repercussions? No, not exactly. 
See, we can never forget that our obedience to Christ is linked to an evidence of our union with Christ. That means that we obey from a position of acceptance by God, not in order to be accepted by God. And so this call to work out your salvation with fear and trembling isn't a call to obey so that you're not obliterated by God. No, see, fear and trembling, it's tied to your humility of remembering that you're a creature and that God alone is God and creator. It's recognizing the holiness of God. It's recognizing the majesty of God. It's being in awe of him, having reverence before him for who he is and, and what he's done for you and in you. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision of God and he comes before the throne of God and he sees God sitting on the throne and Isaiah cries out, woe is me. And here's a man who's seeking after God, who's faithfully seeking to walk in obedience to him, but when he's confronted with the awesomeness of God, he falls on his face and says, woe is me, a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. Why does Isaiah say that? Because in that moment, when he recognizes the bigness of God, the holiness of God, the majesty of God, he recognizes that he still needs transforming grace. He still needs to be transformed by God's holiness. He's undone by the greatness and holiness of God. And that's really important for us to understand when it comes to how people change. And so important that I'm going to come back to it a little bit more in a minute. But before we get to that, what we can't do is what I don't want us to do is say, okay, I got it. Let me jump off from here and run and, and work out my salvation. I've got it. I think I've got all the pieces together. Let's do this thing. Because your call to holiness, your call to obedience isn't a solo endeavor. It's not all up to you. See, we need to see that verse 12 and verse 13 must go together. They must go together. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Or to put it more bluntly, you cannot do what Paul is calling you to in verse 12. You cannot live a life of faithful obedience, of holiness and humility, apart from God working in you. See, verse 13 is an encouragement to us. It's not all up to you. It's not all on you to change yourself. It's not all on you to be more like Jesus. It's a reminder of God's enabling grace. It's a reminder, a reminder of God's empowering grace in your life. But I want us to also be careful here because I, what I don't want us to do in looking at verse 13 along with verse 12 is see that we have this kind of uh, mutual or equal partnership with God. Like God does 50%, I do 50%. It's a good team effort. We're good to go. Transformation happens. No, it doesn't say that God works with you. It says God works in you. God works in you. When you come to know Christ, when you cross from death to life, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, indwells you. God is in you. You are now a temple of that Holy Spirit. The very presence of God has taken up residence within you. I mean, what an amazing, mind-bending reality. What that means is that if you are in Christ, you are never without God. There's nowhere you can go away from his presence. He's with you all the time. And that's what Paul's seeking to remind the Philippians of and us of. Saying, look, you've walked in obedience to Jesus for a long time. You did it in my presence, but now do it much more in my absence. Because even when you're struggling, even when you're seeking to walk in obedience to Jesus now, I may not be here, but God is always here with you. He's, he's in you and he's working amongst you. So brothers and sisters, when you're struggling with obedience, when you're struggling with holiness, 
When, when you're struggling to live like you're a saved man or a saved woman who's been rescued from sin, you can be encouraged to know that your God who is in you is more committed to your holiness than you are. And he's not going anywhere. He is with you and he's at work in you and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so what this means is, is that the working out of salvation on your part is because God is at work within you. So this is not a call to let go and let God. No, sanctification is God's work, but we're not passive in it. God is at work, but he's not doing the work for you. He's enabling you to obey. He's renewing your heart and your mind. He's changing your desires and conforming your will to live not for your personal pleasure, but for his good pleasure. Simply put, you cannot become more like Jesus apart from Jesus. And this is all such good news for us to recognize that we have the ability to say no to sin. It's a good news for us to know that there's opportunity for us to become more like Jesus. But I also want to be careful because I want to make sure that we don't start to believe one of two lies that can surface from misapplying this text. The first is, is that we focus just on verse 12 and kind of push verse 13 to the background. And the lie that you can believe in that moment is it's all up to me. Because you keep trying to be more like Jesus. You've heard sermons, you've read books, and you know that Man, I need to fight against sin in my life. And so you've struggled to have victory over your anger. You've struggled to have victory over your lust. You've struggled to have victory over your pride. You've struggled to have victory over having a lack of gentleness in your life. You've struggled over having greed or being lazy. And you struggle because in the midst of that, you keep experiencing defeat. And when you experience more and more defeat, you experience more and more discouragement. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you feel that way this morning. I'm coming in here, feeling discouraged, feeling defeated, knowing I know what I'm supposed to be like, but I keep not being like that. Listen, our self-help culture, it, it seeks to empower you, and maybe with good intentions. It seeks to call you to be different and give you everything you need to be different and to kind of hurry up and do it. Hey, five steps, you'll be good to go. Just do these three things and you'll be great. It's a hurry up and do it, but that burden is all on you and it's exhausting so we hear and use words and phrases even within the church. Hey, you know, you should be like this. You, you should act like this. You should stop doing this. You shouldn't think like this. But listen, should is a shaming word. It's a word that the enemy uses. Yeah, you don't measure up. Say you follow Jesus, doesn't look much like it. You really going to go do that thing again? You really shouldn't do that. You really should be looking like this. But friends, listen, Jesus doesn't shame you. He invites you to the good life with him. And so you and I are not changed by gimmicks. We're not changed by systems. We need a redeemer to set us free. And victory has already been won for you in Christ. Victory over your anger, victory over your lust, victory over your pride, victory over your lack of gentleness, victory over your greed. Jesus already won that for you. Obedience now is living out the reality of that victory in your life. So maybe one of the things you might need to repent of today is trying to be your own savior, trying to change yourself on your own. 
But the opposite lie is also in play for us because we can also be tempted to look at this text and kind of overcorrect and say, okay, it's not all on me. It must all be on God. And so we push verse 12 to the background and we just focus on verse 13. And so what that looks like in our life is that we just keep doing what we're doing, living like we're living, and kind of say, well, if God wants to change me, then he'll change me. I'll just wait for him to do that. But if that's what your temptation is, what that reveals about your heart is that there is no fear of God. There's no trembling before the awesomeness and the holiness of God, no awe, no reverence, no pursuit of the God who saves you and sanctifies you. So what is the solution? How do we live like saved people? How do people change? How we change is that we believe verse 12 and 13 together and we commit with a laser focus and unwavering resolve to practice the only two spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Sometimes we call Bible reading and Bible study and prayer and things like communion and gathering with the church and fasting and solitude and serving and generosity. We call those things spiritual disciplines. And I'm not trying to split hairs here. But historically, in in reality, those things are really just means of grace. They're means of grace because they're the means that God has given to us to feed our faith in Him. To fuel our faith in Him. See, we don't just have faith when we first believe and are saved and then move on from that. You and I need faith to keep believing as we are being saved. Faith is a trust in God. It's not just believing in God, but believing God. And as one writer says, sanctification, this idea of becoming more like Jesus, is the progressive narrowing of the gap between our confessional faith and our functional faith. Our confessional faith is what we say with our mouth. Our functional faith is how we actually live our lives. And so this idea of progressively growing to be more like Jesus is seeing what we say with our mouths to line up with how we're living our lives or vice versa. And so if God has declared to you that you are new in Christ, if God has declared to you that he has saved you both from the penalty and power of sin, if he declared to you that he will never leave you or forsake you, but he is committed to make you more and more like his son, your savior, then faith is essential for working out your salvation. Taking God at his word. Maybe some of you just need to hear that this morning. We're being reminded of who God is and what he's done in your life and what he is doing in your life. One degree of glory to another. See, ongoing Faith in the life of the believer is an ongoing pursuit of Christ and belief in the grace of the gospel. In other words, if you're going to experience genuine change in your life, if you're going to experience renewal in your life, you have to continue to rediscover and apply the truth of the gospel to your life. To come back to it over and over again, being reminded that you are united in Christ and you no longer are captive to sin. And what this also means then, the inverse of that, is that no genuine soul-level change can take place in anyone's life apart from Jesus in the good news of the gospel. As John Owen, a famous writer from the 1600s, writes in regard to holiness, he says, Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing the gospel in our souls which means that you need the means of grace God has given you to do just that. 
that you would gather with the church to be reminded of who you are in Christ. That you would open up God's word and be taught and instructed in who God is and who you are in light of who God is and what he's doing in your life. The life he's called you to. That you take communion to be reminded of what Christ has done for you. That you would practice times of fasting to say that my greatest treasure is Jesus, not anything this world offers to me. That you would do all of those things, those means of grace to continue to reorient your life to focus on Christ. See, much of the time, the reason you're tempted to and sometimes do delve back into your old life in either thought or action is because you have a too small view of God. That the grandness of God has been reduced down to a God you can put in a box, that you can manage, that you can understand completely. And so you've forgotten God's holiness, you've forgotten God's greatness, you've forgotten how mighty he is, you've forgotten that he is king. But as you partake of the means of grace that fuel your faith, you can get a bigger view of God. In all of his perfection, in all of his holiness, in all of his goodness and grace, as you sit and soak in his word, as you sing songs about who he is and what he's done, as you are reminded as we preach God's word, as we gather together as God's people, your view of God can increase bigger and bigger. But here's the reality. As you get closer and closer and closer to God and recognize his holiness and recognize his majesty, you're going to be just like Isaiah. And you're going to say, God, woe is me. I recognize how big you are and how huge you are. But in the midst of that, what I recognize is, is how sinful I still am. How much I still need to change. Man, if that's happening in your life, be encouraged. It means you have a big view of God. But the good news of the gospel is that when you recognize that your sin is greater, you can know that your Savior is greater still. You cannot out God's grace in Christ. See, friends, when Christ invades your life, it changes everything for you. Not just your behaviors, it changes the core of your desires. Which is what leads us to Repentance. Repentance is the turning away from something by turning to something. It means a changing or a renewing of your mind, the way you think, the way you live. Biblical repentance goes together with faith because it involves turning away from sin by turning to Jesus as your view of him deepens and grows Believing that he is more worthy, that he is more lovely than your sin. Focusing on him, setting your gaze on him. That's what faith and repentance, why they go together. As you set your gaze on Christ, you're turning away from that, which is pulling you away from him. Turning away from your sin and turning towards Jesus. As one pastor writes, to say to temptation, I must not do this, is legalism. But to say to temptation, I need not do this because God is bigger and better is good news. And that's because pursuing obedience and pursuing holiness in your life is not about the giving up of good things. It's about pursuing the best thing. And so if we're going to work out our salvation and strive to live like saved people by God's enabling grace, it will come from a continual life of faith and repentance of saying yes to Jesus and no to sin. This is how lasting change will take place in your life. So let me ask you, do you want to change? Do you want to be more like Jesus? Do you want to be conformed to his image? 
And if you do, how are you pursuing a life of faith and repentance to do so? Maybe for you, you've never done that. You've never thought about living a life of faith and repentance. Well, let me invite you to that today. That you can turn to Christ today. That you can turn away from your sin today and put your hope in Jesus. That the beginning of your salvation can begin today. And that God would continue to work out your salvation in your life as you seek to work it out as he works within you. See, brothers and sisters, the clear command of Paul is a declaration that you cannot live out the gospel, you cannot live out your salvation casually. Not something that's just going to happen kind of by happenstance. It doesn't happen by osmosis. There's intentionality behind it. That's why Paul calls you to work out your salvation. So that means that the strength of your faith is not based on a past experience. The strength of your faith is based on the present following of Jesus. So are you following him today in every part of your life? The call that Paul gives us, the command that he gives us is a call to a long obedience in the same direction. And that's what it means to follow Christ. But that's what it means to follow Christ in a world that does not encourage you to follow Jesus. And that's why we need one another. And see, that leads to this last point that I don't want us to overlook here. This text about how saved people live out their salvation, their new life in Christ, is to be done in the context of community. If we go back and look where he says, the command, work out your own salvation, your is plural. In other words, Paul's saying this command is for the community to live like a community that is now submitted to Jesus as Lord. To look like a community who lives lives that have been radically changed by grace. It's about a community committed to holiness, following Jesus as Lord together. That's why we need each other. I need you to remind me of who I am in Christ. I need you to remind me of when I'm straying from Christ, exhorting me, calling me back to him, and you need that as well. And we don't do that in a way to come down hard on one another. And we recognize that change is a community project. You cannot do this alone. But we don't do that by coming with truth hammers and busting each other over the head or punching each other in the face. Hopefully, definitely not literally, but even figuratively so, right? I don't need to come up to you and tell you what to do. I don't need to tell you, you should, you should, you should. I need to show you your Savior, how beautiful he is, how lovely he is, how great he is, the holiness of our God to continue to help you reorient your gaze back to him. And I need you to do that for me too. Because this world is constantly pulling you away to other things speaking lies into your life and mixing truth with lies and saying, hey, you can have Jesus, but you can also have a little bit of this. No, you're either in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ following Jesus as king or you're not. You're pursuing the things of this world. So friend, if you're tempted right now to try and have your foot in one kingdom and the other, may this be an encouragement and an exhortation to you this morning. You're straying. Come back to Jesus. Come back to him. See, the reality is that we cannot be a holy, Jesus-like church if we are not made up of holy, Jesus-like people. And so, brothers and sisters, family, let's help one another. Let's help one another to acknowledge the holiness of God and be reminded of it. Let's help one another to acknowledge our need for change, that we actually are willing to confess that we have a need for change in our life. Now, I want to be careful here because confession isn't repentance. Confession is the beginning of repentance. 
But just when you come to community group and you say, hey, I'm struggling this way, if that's all you're doing, that's not repentance. You're starting that process, but allow the people around you to say, well, how can I point you towards Jesus to follow him? Let's help one another to acknowledge our need for change. Let's help one another to acknowledge our need for help. That you wouldn't see it as a, as a weakness within you that you can't do this on your own. That's just the reality of your life. God's humbled you in that way. Acknowledge your need for help, the help of the Holy Spirit and the help of others. Let's help each other acknowledge our need for Jesus. We never move on from him. As we seek to do those things, let's do them again tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that. Walking in faith and repentance together. Because friends, this is a lifelong journey of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But one day, there will be no more war against your sin and flesh. And what a day that will be. But until that day, you can strive to walk and live in the way of Jesus who gave himself for you. And you can rejoice in doing that because you know that your God is at work in you and he isn't done with you yet. We get to come together every week to take communion together. And that's a gift of grace to us. It's a means of grace. It's an opportunity for you to take a step in working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's an opportunity to feed your faith and to practice repentance. And so as you come to the table today, let me encourage you, don't come flippantly to the table to eat and drink. Just some bread and some juice. Come expectantly this morning. Come with fear and trembling. Come with reverence and awe that our almighty, holy God not only willingly saved you, but he is and has and will continue to sanctify you. And so as you eat the bread and drink the cup today, a a picture of Christ's body and his blood given for you, remember and rejoice in the truth that in him you have been set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And may this meal compel you to pursue holiness in all of life, compel you to change to the glory of God. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning to take communion. And the reason for that is because of what I just said. This is a declaration of our desperate need for Christ. And so if that's not where you're at right now, we just want to ask you to stay in your seat. But I do want you to consider what I said, that today would be the beginning of your salvation. That you would confess to God, just praying silently to him that you need Jesus and that you would turn away from a life of sin to a life in Christ. And if you have questions about what it means to know Jesus or to follow Jesus or how to start that relationship and what that actually looks like, man, you're in a good place. You're with good people because that's why we're here. We want to journey with you as we're seeking to journey to Jesus too. So let somebody around you know that. Or maybe you're not quite ready to make that step of faith. Would you just let somebody know, hey, I just have questions. I'm curious. Would you help me? We'd love to. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the tables at the back. Tear off a piece of bread. Take a cup to drink. And what Christ, your Lord and Savior, has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for saving us. God, we were lost and alone in this world, seeking to go our own way, but you sought us out. And you brought us into relationship with you through Christ, your Son, who paid for our sin. And so God, we thank you that you've saved us, but we thank you that you're still saving us. You're committed to rescuing us out of 
the sin of this world and the sin that remains in our lives to transform us and change us to be more like Jesus. And so God, we just pray this morning that you would help us to live out the truth of Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Help us to live a life of ongoing faith and repentance so that we might change and grow to be more and more like Jesus. God, would you guard us against the temptation, the lie of believing that it's all on us and the lie of believing it's all on you, but help us, God, to recognize that you call us to obey, but that's as you're working in us to change our will, to change our desires. We rejoice in the good news of grace that comes through Christ our King. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.